Good morning, everybody. It is a blessing to be with you again. Uh, Let's pause now as we open God's word for prayer. Lord God, we thank you that in a world that is uh, often troublesome and reeling and chaotic, Lord, that you are eternally at peace and living in peace. And Lord, we thank you that we can access that peace uh, as your children who are in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the peace you give us that passes understanding. Peace, Lord, even in times of turmoil, whether it's turmoil in the world or turmoil in our individual lives, we thank you for that rich abiding peace that we can have as we as branches dwell in the true vine who is Jesus Christ. Lord God, now as we open your word, uh, we pray that you would richly come and dwell with us, teach us, um, bring to remembrance during this time uh, the things of the gospel, the things that you would have us remember and cling to and chew on and live out. And Lord God, we do this all for your glory. Uh, We thank you for being with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. The tallest mountain in Canada is Mount Logan. Mount Logan sits in southwestern Yukon, uh, near the northern tip of the Gulf of Alaska, and it rises to a staggering 5,959 meters, or... For those of us who are still thinking in terms of the imperial scale, 19,551 feet. Now, to give you an idea of the tremendous height, and this is a tremendously high mountain, to give you an idea of the height of the mountain, let's just consider that the tallest mountain in the province of Quebec, which is uh, Mont-Jacques-Cartier, is only 1,268 meters or 4,160 feet high. So this makes Mount Logan over four and a half times higher than the highest mountain in Quebec. Mount Logan towers over all other mountains in Canada. It overshadows all other mountains in Canada, including all of those very majestic mountains that are found in the Canadian Rockies, in Alberta and in BC. Well, when we talk about Old Testament prophets, Moses was like Mount Logan. Moses was the highest peak in terms of Israel's prophets. Moses towered above all other Old Testament prophets over Isaiah, over Jeremiah, over Ezekiel, over Zephaniah, and all the rest. Moses was the greatest of all Old Testament prophets. He overshadowed all of those Old Testament prophets. Some of the preeminence of Moses can be seen in the fact that he was what O. Palmer Robertson calls, quote, the fountainhead, Moses was the fountainhead of the revelation of God's law to his people. Once again, Moses was the fountainhead of the revelation of God's law to his people. Robertson also says, quote, Later prophets never rise above Moses 
in their position or experience. He says, the bulk of prophetic literature after Moses essentially expands on what Moses already had declared to God's people. Once more, Moses is top of the heap when we're talking about Old Testament prophets. And we can also appreciate the paramount importance of Moses when we consider this. That whereas God revealed his word to the later prophets, so to people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, etc., where God revealed his word to those prophets by way of visions and by way of dreams, in the case of Moses, God spoke face to face, according to Numbers 12, verse 8. And Moses saw the form of the Lord, where other later prophets never had that experience. Again, in terms of Old Testament prophecy, we need to understand that Moses is the peerless, preeminent prophet of Israel. He is the greatest Old Testament prophet of all who towered above all others and who was revered in Israel above all others. And of course, Along with his preeminent status as prophet, Moses, we remember, was also priest. He was leader. He was poet. He was deliverer. He was mediator. He was the author of the first five books of the Bible, a worker of great miracles, and lawgiver. Nobody's resume came close to the resume of Moses. And yet what's interesting is that Moses himself prophesied, he prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that there would come a time after he was dead and buried, that a prophet like him, a prophet like him would come from within the nation of Israel. This prophet would one day arrive on the scene. A prophet that matched the stature of Moses? And Moses told the people in, in that same chapter in Deuteronomy 18 that they must listen to this prophet when he arrived, when he came. This person, this new prophet, would be an Israelite like Moses, and he would bear the authoritative word of God like Moses had done. This prophet like Moses would speak face to face with God like Moses had. This new prophet would come along and he would perform mighty public works and public miracles like Moses had. He would also be, be a mediator between God and human beings, like Moses had been. And this new prophet would also take on the role of deliverer, like Moses had been a deliverer of Israel. A prophet like Moses. Apparently, this new prophet who would come would be another Mount Logan, like Moses had been towering above the rest. But here's the thing. When we come to the end of Deuteronomy, 
So after that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 of the new prophet, it's already been given. When we come to the end of Deuteronomy, what we find there is that the prophet had not come. Israel waited, and they waited for the promise of a prophet like Moses to finally materialize. Well, let's go to the New Testament. Our passage in John's Gospel this morning is John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. I hope where you're sitting at home that you have your Bible open, uh, that you're not simply passively uh, staring at the screen, but that you actually have your Bible open and that you're engaged with the Scriptures. Let's read the story together beginning at the first verse of the chapter. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So the signs that Jesus had been performing and doing had caused these large crowds to form. You know, from the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus, right to the last chapters of the book of Exodus, Moses is forever going up and coming down the mountain. He's going up Mount Sinai and he's coming down Mount Sinai to meet with God and then to meet with the people below. I always think, or I would bet, that Moses' uh, cardiovascular shape must have been phenomenal with all that climbing up and down the mountain. Well, watch Jesus in verse 3 of our passage. What does Jesus do when the crowds are pressing in on him? He goes up a mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Well, perhaps this is an interesting little connection between Jesus and Moses. Jesus climbs up a mountain. Moses had climbed up a mountain and down a mountain. Or is this just sheerly incidental, this parallel? Are we reading too much into the text to say that already here, Jesus is looking a little bit like Moses? Well, let's keep going. Verse 4. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. So Jesus climbs up a mountain during Passover season. Of course, the original institution of the Passover is found in Exodus chapter 12 during the time of Moses. The Passover feast was the commemoration of God rescuing Israel out of their Egyptian bondage. So just notice now in our passage, we have a couple of different possible links between Jesus and Moses. We have the mountain in verse 3, and now we have Passover. Now, do you remember the story that's recorded at the tail end of Exodus 15, just three chapters after Exodus 12, which again is the Passover chapter? At the end of Exodus 15, we have the story of the people journeying and they are grumbling against Moses because they had nothing to drink. In that moment, at that place in the wilderness where they were grumbling, God tested them. 
it says in Exodus 15, 25, God tested them there in the wilderness. Well, watch what happens in verse 5 of our passage. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6, Jesus said this to what? To test Philip. Just as Israel had been tested by God in the wilderness when they were thirsty, so now Jesus in this wilderness setting tests Philip. So in our text so far, let's just take stock for a moment. We've seen Jesus echoing Moses a little bit, going up on a mountain, and he's doing that during Passover season. But now we also see Jesus acting like God did in the wilderness. Jesus tests Philip. Let's go forward. Verses 7 through 11. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Now this multiplication of loaves and fishes here is the fourth major sign that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. It is an astonishing miracle. We know it well, most of us, but just consider this. Jesus feeds 5,000 men, and perhaps with women and children there, the number might be closer to 10 or 15,000 people. He feeds these people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. And note carefully the phrase at the end of verse 11. All those people who are gathered there, they ate as much as they wanted. In Exodus chapter 16, God miraculously provided a bread-like food called manna to the grumbling masses of people there in the wilderness. And it says in verse 18 of Exodus 16 that each of them, listen to what it says, each grumbling person gathered as much as he could eat. And again, it says in Exodus 16, 21, morning by morning, they gathered manna, each as much as he could eat. Well, in John, in verse 11 of our passage, it tells us that the people who were gathered before Jesus ate as much as they wanted of the bread that Jesus multiplied. Clearly, this is echoing the story of Exodus chapter 16, where the people in the wilderness ate as much as they could eat of the miraculous manna that God provided. 
There's something going on here. In John chapter 6, Jesus went up a mountain like Moses, and the story is situated in Passover season, which is another allusion to the story of Moses, and Jesus tests Philip, just as God had tested his people in the story of Moses, and Jesus, just like God had done in Exodus 16, provides bread. He provides this new Passover meal for the people And he does this out of nowhere. We read all of this and we pause as we read our Bible and we wonder, who is this Jesus? He looks like a new Moses, but yet he's doing things that are reserved for God. That God did during the Exodus, like miraculously feeding the people. Who is Jesus? Well, on to verse 12. When they had eaten their fill, Jesus told his disciples, listen to this, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Back to Exodus chapter 16 again, there was likewise a concern on the part of Moses to be frugal with the manna, to save some for the Sabbath and not waste it. Verses 13 and 14. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, listen to what they said. This is indeed the prophet. The prophet who is to come into the world. So the people witnessed this miracle. This miracle of Jesus multiplying loaves and fish, very reminiscent of Moses with the manna. And they say aloud now, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. What are they referring to here? They're referring to that promise of Moses that we mentioned earlier, the promise of Deuteronomy 18, that a prophet like Moses would arise on the scene. That promise had mentioned specifically in Deuteronomy 18, it had mentioned the presence of signs and wonders when the new prophet would arise. And here, they've got all the signs and wonders that they need. Jesus has just fed 10 to 15,000 people uh, with five loaves and two fish. And so they say, Jesus is is the prophet like Moses. Look at how manna from heaven has appeared out of nowhere and fed all of these people in the wilderness so that everybody had as much as they could eat. Now again, all of this is going on in Passover season, as we learned at the beginning of the chapter. As Don Carson points out, Passover season in the first century, this was a time when nationalistic fervor ran particularly high. Again, we need to remember that the people of Israel during this time are living under Roman occupation. They wanted a deliverer really bad. Somebody who would come along and extract them out of the clutches of Rome. 
And here in John 6, the people perceive that Jesus is that guy. Their fervent desire now, after they've identified Jesus as the prophet like Moses, their fervent desire is to install Jesus as the king who would deliver them from their servitude to Rome. But watch Jesus in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus did what? He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And I think there's a great word to each and every one of us here. The word or the lesson is this. None of us, doesn't matter who you are, none of us can force Jesus to do what we want him to do. Jesus will maintain his sovereign freedom. He will not come under the yoke of people's expectations. Here, what we have is this zealous, forceful desire of the people to make Jesus their, their uh, military-esque king. When this desire is in play and all this zeal and fervor is surrounding Jesus, what does Jesus do? He simply takes off. He withdraws to the mountain. Jesus knows his mission, and this ain't it. And so he slips away. Now, before we go to our final six verses this morning, as we're tracking through the story, let's just take stock briefly of where we've been. So in verses 1 through 15, which we've just gone through, we've seen rather obvious connections between Jesus and Moses. Like Moses, Jesus goes up a mountain a couple of times. Like Moses, Jesus performs a miraculous sign. And then the people link Jesus with that prophecy of Moses about a prophet like Moses who would arrive on the scene. It's Jesus. But unlike Moses, Jesus in our passage provides the miraculous bread himself. Moses in Exodus 16 was only a bystander as God provided the manna. Jesus provides the bread himself. And in Exodus, it was God who tested the people in the wilderness, not Moses. In our passage, Jesus tests Philip. So, so already we gather in this passage that Jesus is indeed like Moses. He is indeed like Moses. But on the other hand, he also escapes the bounds of Moses. He seems to be, dare we say it, the greatest prophet in Israel, Moses, Jesus seems to be more than Moses. A little later in this very same chapter of John, Jesus will declare that he himself is, is the bread of life. The bread that comes down from heaven, which is something that Moses could not, did not, ever say. 
about himself. Moses relied on the manna that God provided just as much as the other Israelites did. Jesus comes along and says, I am the bread of life. And so our question as we're going through John 6 is this, could Jesus be even higher than the Mount Logan who is Moses? Could Jesus be greater even than great Moses? Wouldn't that be something? Well, let's go to verse 16. Now, if anyone is still arguing after they've read verses 1 through 15, if you're still arguing that Jesus is simply and only a new prophet like Moses who, who feeds people in the wilderness with manna, if that's kind of what you're arguing, that perception now gets blown out of the water, no pun intended, gets blown out of the water in what follows. And you'll see where the pun comes in in just a minute. When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. There's the water. Now we ask, didn't something pretty special happen with Moses when he was at the sea? Moses led the rescue of God's people through the Red Sea. Well, now our story in John 6 is situated at the sea. Verse 17, the disciples got into a boat and started across the sea, of Caperna the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. We're noticing here how John doesn't throw any words away in his gospel. It was now dark. Well, in Exodus chapter 14, the crossing of the Red Sea had happened in the dark, at night. We wonder, is something miraculous like the splitting of the Red Sea about to happen here in John 6 in the dark, at the sea? It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Exodus chapter 14, verse 21, a strong wind from the Lord had been churned up at the Red Sea event. Verse 19 when they had rowed about three or four miles, that's a significant distance. They've rowed three or four miles. What did they see? They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, the vast majority of people in our day take it for granted that no human being can walk unaided on top of a body of water, right? It's impossible for a person to walk on water. That person, because of the laws of physics, will sink as soon as he or she tries. Well... I would wager 
that the disciples of Jesus, prior to this incident here in verse 19, they would have been thinking in exactly the same terms. No person can walk on top of water. It's impossible. Every rational person knows that. And then they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the the boat. Our verse reports that upon this site, the disciples were frightened. I bet they were. I would be terrified. I mean, imagine it. You're, you're out in a boat. You're three or four miles they had rowed. You're, you're far from shore, and you see a guy coming toward you. It's nighttime. You see a guy coming toward you walking on rough water. Remember, this is not calm water, according to the text. Walking on rough water, this person is stepping over waves. In Mark's account of this very same story, in Mark chapter 6, he reports there the terror that the disciples felt as they saw this figure walking on water. And it also says that they thought that what they were seeing was a ghost or a spirit of some kind. And it says they cried out in terror. It's only when you're really terrified that you actually will cry out. Well, let's go to verse 20. Jesus allays their terror. He puts them at ease. Jesus. He says to the disciples, Ego a me, in the original Greek, or in the English translation, it is I. It is I, says Jesus. Do not be afraid. Now back to the Moses story for just a minute. One of the most climactic episodes of all in the story of Moses happens in Exodus chapter 3 when God revealed to Moses God's personal name, I Am. And here we're talking about Exodus 3.14 in particular. That verse reads, I'll read it to you. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Yes, Moses, the one who is going to liberate your people from Egypt with a mighty hand, the one who's going to sustain you in the wilderness with manna, the one who's going to bring you to the land that was promised To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his name is I Am. I Am is the self-identification of God. Well, guess what, friends? Here's where things get interesting. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was the version of the Old Testament that the apostles read, The words I am in Exodus 3.14 are ego a me. In the Greek, they are 
exactly the same words that Jesus uses in John 6.20 when he says, Ego a me, it is I. In essence, what happens here in John 6 is that the disciples witness this terrifying spectacle of a man walking on the rough sea. It's Jesus, and Jesus comes to the boat and he says, I am. Do not be afraid. And what makes this even more interesting is that over in the book of Isaiah, track with me here, in the book of Isaiah, in the Greek version of Isaiah 43, as God is speaking, again, as God is speaking in Isaiah 43, we have three uses of ego, I, me, I am, one in verse 10, two in verse 25, and we also have God saying twice to Israel, fear not. Verse 1 of Isaiah 43 and verse 5, fear not. So we have ego a me, I am, it is I. Fear not, do not be afraid. Exodus 3, Isaiah 43, John 6. So what's going on here in John 6.20? What's going on is that Jesus identifies himself as the same God of Exodus 3.14 and the same God of Isaiah 43, I am, do not be afraid. We ask the question, whose way is through the sea, according to Psalm 77.19? Only God's way is through the sea. Whose path is through the great waters, according to Psalm 77, 19, only God's path. Who tramples the waves of the sea, according to Job 9, 8, only God does. Jesus is God come in the flesh. Here we have him walking his way, making his way through the sea, making a path through great waters, trampling the waves of the sea. I am, do not be afraid. He's the risen Christ who is with us this very second as I preach in this sanctuary to three people tonight. He's the risen Christ who is with you as you sit behind your phone or, or your computer screen. He's with you this very second. And right now, he's saying to each and every one of us, don't be scared. Don't be terrified. I am. I am the God who delivers. I am the God who saves. I am the God who redeems. I am the God who holds the turnings and the churnings of history in my sovereign hand. I am. Do not be afraid. Verse 21 says that now the disciples, I love this verse, they were glad <laughs> to take him into the boat. I think that's maybe an understatement. 
They were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat, listen, was at the land to which they were going. This is beautiful. In the day of Moses, at the Exodus event, God brought his people through the sea safely to land. Now God does it again in the person of Jesus Christ. He brings the disciples safely out of a raging sea back to the safe haven of land. The one in the boat with the disciples is none other than the God of Psalm 89.9 who rules the raging of the sea when its waves rise. He stills them. He leads them through the sea to safety. Well, friends, as we have traversed through this magnificent passage, what have we noticed about Jesus Christ? We've seen him in this passage resemble Moses at times. We've seen evidence that indeed Jesus is the prophet like Moses who was to come. Jesus is the fulfillment, to be sure. He's the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. He is the prophet that Moses had promised. But what we've also seen here is this, that Jesus, listen carefully, Jesus is no mere Mount Logan like Moses was. He's no mere prophet like Moses. Mount Logan is far and away the highest mountain in Canada. Moses was far and away the greatest prophet of Old Testament Israel. No one came close to Moses. No mountain comes close to Mount Logan in Canada. But guess what? When we speak of mountains, there are 244 mountains, 244 mountains on our planet that are higher than Mount Logan. And the highest of those peaks, towering above all the others, is Mount Everest which is, get this, 2,889 meters or 9,470 feet higher than Mount Logan. Mount Everest puts Mount Logan in the shade. Jesus puts Moses in the shade. Moses is so great, but Jesus is far greater. All those titles that Moses carried, remember we said fountainhead of the revelation of God's law to his people, prophet, priest, leader, poet, deliverer, mediator, author of the first five books of the Bible, worker of great miracles. That's a very impressive resume that Moses had, but it is overshadowed tremendously and greatly and infinitely by the person of Jesus Christ who has on his resume the following titles, the following realities. And I hope here you'll just simply worship with me as you consider your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Son of God. 
Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Word incarnate. Jesus is prophet, great high priest, king of kings, Lord of lords, servant of the Lord, Lamb of God, head of the church, bridegroom of the bride, great shepherd. He is author and finisher of our faith. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the bread of life. He is the door of the sheep. He is the prince of peace. He is the light of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the amen, the true vine. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. He is the bright morning star. Jesus is the branch of David. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. He is savior, redeemer, He is the last Adam. He is greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than the physical temple. He is the temple. He is the heir of all things by whom and in whom and for whom all things have been created. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. This one who is greatest of all comes to perform a new exodus. Where Moses had been the agent who was used of God to set the people free from their bondage in Egypt, Jesus comes to set us free from another far greater slavery, the slavery and the chains of sin. As we close now, listen here to the Exodus language. Listen to the slavery and liberation language that Jesus himself uses. Speaking of himself, he uses in John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. He says to us, listen, listen for the Exodus language. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, Exodus language, sets you free, you will be free indeed. I wonder, friend, are you a person who has been rescued, who has been liberated, who has been set free by Jesus Christ and his almighty power? Are you a person who has come to the cross of Jesus Christ where he died to set captives free? And have you repented of your sin? And have you asked God to forgive you by the shed blood of the lamb? Have you turned to the greater than Moses, Jesus Christ, the son of God and soon coming king? I pray even now that whoever you are, And wherever you are, that the Spirit would convict you, right where you are, would convict you of your sin and bring you to a place of repentance and contrite sorrow over your sin, and that you would be open to Jesus Christ, that you would simply open your hand to him and receive the crucified and risen Christ and all of his wonderful benefits. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven,
We praise and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his grandeur, his glory, his almighty power, the fact that the risen Christ lives in union with us. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit, and we pray, dear God, that you would just grab hold of us this week, whatever we are walking into or walking through, bring us the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, the encouragement of the gospel. Help us to remember that we have as Christians the bread of life to feast on Jesus Christ. Help us to draw from the vine this week, we pray in the mighty, in the powerful name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.